Good morning again. Well, today's message is the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Last week we talked about spiritual warfare. And um, we really looked at what season are we in as a church. And we found that there's life in this church. There's power in this church. And there's a season of growing. There's a season of maturing. There's a season of strengthening for the next step that God is calling us to. And when that happens, we experience attacks from the enemy. It shouldn't surprise us. And so we looked at the fact that the attack itself should be expected during times like this, and there are specific signs. And we looked at some of those signs that were in the spiritual battle. And we looked at why God allows it in our lives, and why it's ultimately good for us, and that we don't fight in our flesh and blood, but we actually rely on the Lord to fight the battle for us. That if He were to open our eyes, we would see the hosts of heaven standing beside us with chariots and weapons. We're not alone. We're not alone. And we win. That's the, that was the end. We win. And we have to keep our mind focused on that. But I thought that was kind of an overview of what we're experiencing. But today I'd like to unpack a little bit some practical application. And so the key to spiritual warfare truly is being firmly rooted and grounded in the love of God. It is those roots that sink deeply where the life comes into the tree, where the life comes into our spirit. That truly, His love, is the only way that we can stand up against attack. Because it's His love that strengthens our faith, that casts our eyes beyond the trial, and we can see ourselves seated in, in heaven, already as heirs in Christ, eternally secure, loved, all of our sin behind us, and the echoes of whatever trial we face will be a distant memory if we remember it at all. But if we don't stand and abide in that love, then we can become distracted by the attack. And we can believe that it actually has much more power than it does. And if our roots of that love are not actually deeply, deeply down in the soil of our lives, then we can stumble. You know, we hear about God's love all the time. God loves you, God loves you, God loves me, God loves you. And sometimes when we hear something enough, it loses its, its meaning. It's kind of like saying asparagus, 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 asparagus. And what, what's that? It sounds like noise at a certain point. And so I want to take some time today not only to say that God loves you and He loves me and His love is forever and we can trust it and it's unfailing, but to actually soak in it and let it come into our spirits to where it's real to us, more real than this worldly, earthly life, that it goes beyond that, it transcends that, and it buoys us up on wings of eagles. And I think we're going to be delving back into Romans, but a beautiful companion scripture to that is from Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. And I'd like to go ahead and just go over this with you as we prepare to really meditate on what God's love is in our lives. And it says, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with the power through His Spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. 
We can only discern this by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't discern it in our flesh. Love in the flesh is a twisted, poor counterfeit of what God's love is. We can't know it. We can't feel it. We've never experienced it except what God reveals to us supernaturally. And so today I ask that we open our hearts and the Spirit moves in so that we can fully embrace and internalize and live and abide in that love. So last week, we stood and we declared the word of the Lord. We declared two scriptures. And the first one was Romans 8, 31 to 39. And then we declared uh, from Ephesians 6 on the armor of God. And we declared that word and there was power in declaring it. But there's also power in unpacking it and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us piece by piece, mouthful, mouthful by mouthful. And so let's begin with the very, very first part of the very first part of 31. 31 has two parts. Let's do the first half, and that is, what shall we say to these things? Well, before we can say anything to these things, we have to ask ourselves, what things? What's Paul talking about? He's referring back to the whole book, chapters 1 through 7, and most of chapter 8. He has already laid out some deep theological spiritual truths that are so powerful and weighty that he's like, what are we going to say to this? I've just told you some deep truths about God's love for you, so how do we respond? So before we really can decide what we're going to say about it, let's go back and see what Paul said about it in the book of Romans. So if we just do a quick flyby of Romans 1 through 7, it's pretty much summed up as salvation is by grace through faith. Did I say grace through faith? Sorry about that. All right, it's through grace by faith. And um, basically, it's not about our works. It's not about keeping any kind of ceremonial laws. It's not about sacrifices. It's not about how much we pray or what good deeds we do or who we give our money to. It's simply about bowing our knee in our wretched fallenness and saying, God, I can't do it, but you, as the Lord of my life, have borne my sins, and I'm a co-heir with you now. Simple as that. Now, as we move on to unpack chapter 8, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. And so if we look just at the very first part of chapter 8, it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if we are in Christ Jesus, there is nothing we've done, there's nothing that anyone can accuse us of that will bring condemnation on us. We are completely and totally righteous in Christ. In 8.15, it says, the spirit you received brought about your adoption into sonship, that we may cry, Abba, Father. We are not only saved, but we are now part of the family, part of the body. We can call him Abba. We can call him Papa. We can call him Daddy. There's an intimacy in that that comes through the cross. In 17, it says we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In 8.18, it says our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that we will receive when we reach our reward. Whatever we're going through is here, and God's riches and glory are through the roof, through the skies, into into outer space. We won't even think about them when the reality of His glory is revealed in us. In 826, it tells us that He's given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and that Holy Spirit gives us strength in our weakness when we're under attack, when we're doubting ourselves, when we're facing the storm and we're weak. He is strong through the Holy Spirit, and that He intercedes for us. 
He prays for us when we don't know what to pray. Because when we're in the battle, sometimes we have confusion. And all we can say is, God, help me. Or Well, you know what? The Holy Spirit's got it down, and He's very eloquent. He's got all the words down. And He is interceding to the Father for us. So we don't have to worry if we're just mumbling and stuttering in our prayers. The Holy Spirit, through groanings, is actually saying the perfect prayer on our behalf. In 828, this is a great one. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. It's a promise that what we're going through now ultimately will work for our good. And we hear this again and again, but when we're, when we're in the trial, do we believe in His love enough to know that this is true for me? It's not words on a page. 829 and 30. For those God foreknew. He knew you before you were born. He knew you before the universe was created. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. Before you were created, before you fell, before you sinned, He already saw you perfected in Christ. It says here that He predestined us, He called us, and He justified us. He also glorified us. This is all in the past tense. We are already glorified. He already sees us sitting in heaven with Jesus as co-heirs. It's not like there's a question about whether you're going to make it. The question was settled before we even had a hand in it. Any hand we put in it would have messed it up, but God didn't ask us to put our hands in it, except up and surrender. And that was it. We're already glorified. That is more real than whatever trial you're facing now. That's the true ultimate reality that no one can take away from us. And so Paul says, well, what should we say to that? I don't know what to say to that. I can just say, wow, and thank you. There are moments when we're left without words. And I don't know when you experience those moments. Sometimes when we look at a mountain, I love mountains. There's something majestic about them that point to the heavens and His majesty and creation. And I just feel God's presence and love and it overwhelms me. And I don't have words to speak. A sunset. Starry night, a newborn child. There are times when we're lifting our hands in praise and we're just overwhelmed by thankfulness and gratefulness and His love just wraps us up in a soft embrace and we have no words for it. Sometimes we open the Bible and there's a scripture that pierces our heart, brings us to our knees and we say, thank you, it's too good. It's too good, you're too good. And it's that love that sustains us. Now, I had my own wow moment, and I find this very interesting because it is exactly the video that we saw about a father and a son saying, I got this. I was working at ORU, this is about 15 years ago, and you guys know my journey. It was up and down, a lot of down, a lot of back and forth, and I was probably in one of those moments of my life where I really needed to know that God loved me in spite of all of my failures. And I was walking up the hill to the the athletic center. I was going to pump some iron. By the way, I have learned that these are actually quadriceps. Um, Last week I referred to them as another part of the body, but these are quadriceps. I was probably going to work those. And um, if you weren't here last week, watch the video. You'll know what I'm talking about. But anyway, so I was getting there and I saw a family. There was a mom, there was a dad, and there was a toddler probably about that size. And after you get up the hill, there are these stairs that lead you to the, to the gym, to the, what is it called, the athletic center, the 
The aerobic center, the AC, right. So I was standing there, and I watched. There was a mother standing back there, and I could see the child was trying to climb up the stairs. And they were really a bit too big for him. And mom was like, honey, take your daddy's hand, or take the railing, or honey, take him. I mean, she was back there worried about what might happen. And I love mothers. Mothers are so nurturing. They're there to protect us a lot of the time. But the wonderful thing about fathers is they're there to push us sometimes, take the risk, okay? And so dad was back there behind the stairs saying, you know, I'm here, you can do it, you're the man, da-da-da-da-da. And the little boy's just climbing up there, and he's looking great. And suddenly, he fell. And I don't know if it was any big serious injury, but you know when a toddler falls, there's that moment where you don't know if they're going to be okay, or you don't know if you're going to hear the, ah, the, the scream coming. And right in that moment, before the child even knew which way he was going to go, the father just picked him up, gave him a big kiss, and then walked up the stairs with him. And I think that boy totally forgot he even fell. He was in his father's arms. His father was there to catch him. And there was no shame. There was no condemnation. There was no injury that was going to prevent him from moving on. It was, okay, you fell, let's go. And as I was standing there behind them, I just saw God doing that for me. I saw him loving me, not mad at me for falling, not mad at me for teetering, but simply there to catch me and to guide me and to carry me. And I was overwhelmed. I just could say, wow, it's too good. God, you're too good. Your love is amazing. So Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Besides, wow, he's got some more things to say. And he answers the question with a question. And his answer, or his question, that's the answer, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's another scripture that we hear all the time. Let's think about what that means. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean if, like we're not sure. If I win the lottery, I will buy a yacht. Well, I haven't won the lottery, and I don't have a yacht, okay? But what it actually means is, since God is for you, who can be against you? Because God is for you, who can be against you? You know, I often think about my days riding the bus. To me, the bus was this very treacherous, terrible, horrible, awful experience because I had bullies on the bus that did not particularly care for me. And um, I think a lot of people experience that when you're the new kid in school and they're the bullies. And you know while you're on the bus, you're safe. You know, they're not going to beat you up or knife you on the bus. But the minute the door opens, you've got like two blocks to get to before you're safe. And the bullies are right behind you. And so you're just running, and you're running, and they're after you, and they're condemning you, and we're going to beat you up, we're going to punch you, you're going to be a bloody mess, you loser, da-da-da-da-da. And then you get to your driveway, and who do you see? Dad. Now, in this case, Dad is about six foot six. He's got the chest of a Buick. He's got arms like melons, legs of steel, Navy SEAL, um, martial, mixed martial arts master, and all you got to do is go behind and hang around daddy's leg and go mm, to the bullies. <laughs> and you hear your father say, boys, I think you ought to get home. Your mom's waiting for you. And they're like, okay, sir. See you later, Tommy. And they're gone. That is exactly what's happening. We've got the biggest, baddest, strongest, most 
We've got the supreme power of the universe who's on our side. There are, there's nothing that can get us when we're wrapped around Daddy's leg. He can handle this for us. He's a good God. Now, Paul has laid out an amazing good news for us. We're heirs with Christ. All things work together for good. If God is for you, who can be against you? And he lays out the good news because he also wants to say that you need to know this is true. You have to be grounded in this, these facts because there is a battle. And there are those who will try to be against you. But you need to remember that there is no weapon formed against you that shall prosper. And that Jesus has overcome the world. Ultimately. We have to focus on that in the midst of the trial. Now Paul continues in Romans 8.32. He said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is the perfect picture of God's ultimate love. Him giving his son for us. And it says in 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. This is the definition of love. It says that Jesus laid down his life for us. He's already shown his love. He's already paid the ultimate price. He's already given the ultimate gift. So what left is there for him to withhold from us? I want you to imagine that you're at a banquet. And they've laid out the table with every delicacy from all over the world, prepared by the chefs from the Vienna School of Culinary Arts and the Sorbonne in Paris and wherever else. And you sit down and you ask, oh, could I have a glass of water? And they say, no, how dare you? I'm not giving you a glass of water. That's ridiculous. He's already laid out the feast. He's already given the most precious gift possible. If he's died for our salvation, which was the supreme price, How could we ever doubt that He'll bring us into the promised land, that He'll bring us into glory, that He will raise us up, that that we're glorified? He's already done the biggest thing, so He will do the lesser things to get us there. We can't forget that. So, we continue, 33 and 34, and it says, Who will bring any charge and make it stick? Now, this is important. Lots of charges will be flung left and right, but they will not stick against those who God has chosen, and that's us. It is God who justifies. He's the one that's acquitted us. He said we're not guilty, so any accusation's already been determined by the Supreme Court. And there's no higher court. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So right here we see, God. is God going to condemn us? Absolutely not. He's the judge. He's already acquitted us. It's already old news to him. Is Jesus going to condemn us? Of course not. He went to the cross for us. He died so that we could be righteous, and he's interceding for us. Will the Holy Spirit condemn us? No, the Holy Spirit is in us to intercede for us, to comfort us in our weakness. So we've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Godhead on our side. Who's going to go after us? Well, Satan tries, okay? And not only Satan, but people. Satan uses people. Remember, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. It's all about principalities and powers and dark forces in the heavenlies. Satan is behind those people. Let's not forget that these are lost and broken people that are deceived. It's the voice behind them that is actually trying to accuse us. Let's go back. I'm not quite done with that one. 
So here we have a picture of a court scene, and we don't see God the Father, but He's the judge. And we have Jesus standing right next to us, and He is our lawyer. And we're standing there as Satan brings the accusation. And He says, adultery, and God says, not guilty. Liar, not guilty. Greed, not guilty. Pride, not guilty. Thief, not guilty. Sexually immoral, not guilty. Now, does not guilty mean we didn't do those things? No. All of those accusations are 100% accurate, but they're of no effect. When we stand before the court, Jesus says, I got that. I died for that. I bled for that. I nailed that to the cross. It is of no effect. It has no, there's no penalty for you anymore. Now, sometimes... You were waiting for this, right? A tale of two something. We had a tale of two Walmarts, a tale of two attacks, now a tale of two tickets, and I probably won't do this anymore. But there is a tale of two tickets. Sometimes God gives us an earthly example of his heavenly pardon. And he's done that for me so many times. And I want to begin this by saying that we deserve to have consequences to our actions. I am no way saying that we have license to sin because God's going to take the consequences away. But in two particular occasions, God did something pretty miraculous when I deserved pretty bad consequences. The first one, I was 21, and I happened to be speeding in a school zone. I was going 59 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. And at that time, that was a record for Tulsa. That was the worst speeding in a school zone that had ever been recorded. And I remember my lawyer basically was trying everything to keep me out of jail because school had just started, they were looking to make an example of somebody, and I got to be that example. And basically the DA said, look, if I go back and look at his record and there is even one parking ticket on it, then he's going to go to jail for up to three months. Now, when I heard that, I was ready to pack my jail stuff. Because I had more than a parking ticket. I had many speeding tickets. I had stop sign tickets. I had parking tickets. I mean, I, w- I had a bunch of stuff on there. Now, when my mom heard the news, she was looking for recipes that would hold a file really well. You know, she was ready to b- break me out of jail. My dad, on the other hand, was thinking, well, a couple of months with Jeff on the rock pile would probably do him good. And he can't ask me for money during those two months. So, you know, son, wish you well. Hi, Dad. Happy Father's Day. I love you. Um, Dads are awesome. Dad's tough love is really important. It's a balance to Mama's grace. So, lo and behold, there was nothing on my record. Nothing. Not a parking ticket, not a traffic ticket, not so much as me spitting gum out the window. It was clean as a whistle, wiped. I was going to make a political statement, but I won't. Forget that. It was gone. It was gone. Like nothing. It was disappeared. And so, um, basically, I got off the hook. Now, I did have to pay a fine, and it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't two to three months in jail breaking rocks on the rock pile. Fast forward to 2008, and I got a DUI. Now, that DUI was not actually my first DUI. I'd gotten one in 2000. And so, one DUI is one thing. Two DUIs is a felony, and that could put you in jail for... A while. I'm currently working with a guy in jail who is in jail with his second DUI because uh, it's a felony. And he's been in there over a year. He's about ready to get out. 
but I was very worried because I knew that I'd had this other DUI, and I was called to court. I was supposed to go to a particular courtroom for felony offenses, and I went there to go in, and I saw my name, and it was crossed out, and it referred me to another courtroom. And when I got there, I asked my lawyer what had happened, and he said, well, there's no record of your first DUI. I said, what do you mean? He said, I heard, I heard it on the, the computer, said I had one. He said, yeah, the computer said you had one, and we know you had one, but there's no official record that you had one, so you're not being penalized for that. And so I ended up not going to jail, and I ended up, it, wasn't, it was not an easy thing, and I don't recommend it, but what I would say is that in spite of my guilt, in spite of my deserving the full extent of the law, God showed me a picture of what we'll experience in heaven. He took away the penalty from what I had done. Now, we know that Satan accuses us, but we also accuse ourselves sometimes. We tell someone that God loves them, or we sit there and say, I know God loves me, but there's a moment when the enemy will come in and say, but you're not good enough. If I'm such a sinner, how could God love me? What we don't understand is that God's love is unmerited favor. It has nothing at all to do with us. The only thing we have to do to earn God's love is be the object of God's love. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it, and that's a reality that we, in fact, have to remind ourselves of day after day. I used to go through periods of time where I would be driving my car or flying in a plane, and I would have to take a spiritual inventory. Am I in with God or am I out with God? If the plane goes down, where am I heading? Because at the moment, I really believed his, God, his love was dependent on my actions. I remember talking to my uncle one time, and he was not a born-again believer. He was a Christian, but from a different faith. And he would say, I'm so sick of those born-again believers saying they're saved. Nobody knows they're saved until they get to heaven. Nobody knows if they're good enough. I'm just tired of those people. And I remember thinking, and what he said was, what pride? But in reality, it would only be pride that would let us believe that we could ever earn God's love and acceptance of us. To think that we could ever approach His holiness and His perfection in our flesh with our best intentions. All we can do is admit our brokenness, surrender on our knees, thank Him for His grace and His sacrifice, and receive His love. That is the beginning and the end of it. There's nothing we can do. We can't sin our way into hell. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are already glorified in heaven. No one can take us out of His hands. So if I'm accusing myself, I'm not speaking God's truth. I'm speaking the enemy's lies. And I've got to maintain this assurity in God's love that I'm His. Where are your accusers? Who's left to condemn you? There's no one. Then neither do I condemn you. And just like the woman caught in adultery, guilty, she's set free. And she's set free to sin no more. Because when we're trying to earn God's love through our flesh, and we try to put it on ourselves, we end up sinning more. But when we are totally freed by God's love, to know that we're secure in Him, that He's rooting for us, that He's behind us, that He'll catch us when we fall, then suddenly a new power comes into us where we can walk in righteousness. If we live by the Spirit, we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's only through God's power, not through our flesh, that we can ever really walk in righteousness. So let's continue, verses 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine or nakedness, danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Now Paul knows exactly what this is like. Look at Paul's life. He was stoned to death, some people say, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, imprisoned and ultimately killed. And even him in his battles and in his struggles, many times saved from them, rescued from them, but many times ultimately only saved through them. Jesus stood in the fire with him. His grace was sufficient. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was. He prayed for it to be removed, and Jesus said, no, I'm not going to remove it. But I'm here with you. I'm giving you enough grace to bear it. We will find ourselves in one or other of these positions, either rescued from it in the moment or rescued through it and strengthened by grace. There's no door number three. We win. We're rescued. We have victory regardless. It won't be easy, but we have it. When trials come, Satan's bait, he has bait to us. When we're experiencing trials, his bait is one of two things. And the first one is, I've done something wrong. So God has moved away from me. That's why these things are happening to me. Or, God isn't really faithful. He's not who he said he is. So let's examine this through John the Baptist's life. You know, here's the question. Has God abandoned me? Well, if we look in Matthew 11, 1 to 3, it says, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Well, at this time, John has been imprisoned in Jerusalem. His cousin, the Lord Almighty, Jesus Christ and Savior, rather than altering that situation, goes about as far away from John as he could possibly go to Galilee. And John is sitting there in the dungeon asking himself, did I miss it? Did I, did I do something wrong? Why am I abandoned? Why did he go? Why, he has the power to rescue me, but he left me. And then it says, And this is the second part. Are you really who you say you are? Are you really faithful? Are you really God? Are you the God that promises to deliver me? Really? Well, it says here, when John was in prison, he heard about the deeds of Messiah. He sent his disciples to ask this question. It's an odd question. Are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? This is John, who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who said, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. He knew who Jesus was, and yet, during the trial, he had his doubts. Is it really you? Did I do something wrong? So has God abandoned me? No. No, not at all. It says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. No matter how it feels, we've already conquered. And we're more than conquerors. Not only will we have victory, not only will we survive the attack, not only are we seated with Christ, but God even takes those things which were meant to destroy us and He turns them on their head, uses them for our good, conforms us into the image of Christ. We are more than conquerors. We are more than overcomers. So here's the finale. This is the big sum up of all of this. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, and I would add even the past, that points its finger in our face, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Paul's basically saying, I could write this list forever, so I'm just going to sum it up here. There is nothing anywhere that's been created that can defeat you. 
will be able will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what do we say to that? We say, wow, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us. Nothing in all creation can separate us. So no matter what we see, that is the reality. Now this brings me to uh, a little hymn. You guys know the love of God, any of you? It's, a, it's an old-timey hymn, 1920-something. And um, when I was going through hard times, I had a friend. Her name was Wanda, and she kind of was a spiritual counselor, and she helped me with a lot of issues in my life. And there were times when I felt completely defeated. And she would simply say to me, Jeff, come sit here on the piano bench. She'd been a piano teacher for her whole life. And we would just play the love of God. Now, I will tell you, I was 21. I wasn't into the old hymns. I kind of thought, okay, I'll sit on the bench. But over the years, the words of this hymn have come into my spirit time and time and time and time again to really convey that the love of God is inexpressible in human language and human words, that it is deep and abiding, and that it is our foundation. It is which will enable us to overcome spiritual darkness. So it goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. God's love is overwhelming, it's never-ending, it's reckless, but it saves us, it strengthens us, and it gives us hope in the midst of everything. So let's pray. Father God, may the knowledge of your love be so real in our lives. May it imbue every fiber of our being. That when we face the time of trial, the time of doubt, that that knowledge of your love comes to bear for our strength. And that we will know beyond all doubt that you are a God in heaven who keeps his promises, who fortifies us, and more than anything, who loves us as his dear children and withholds nothing good from us. We thank you and praise you and love you in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen.